0: Welcome to The Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. It's a day of controversies, lexicographical and uglery-wise. We'll speak with, because lexicog- lexicographical. Le- yeah, it's a there hard word to say. It is. That's you why I wrote it, it into
1: your part of the script.
0: Oh, well, thanks. I appreciate You're that. You're welcome. Good thing we're talking to the word nerd leader. <laughs> we'll speak with Vito Peron about the ongoing East Hampton School Committee debacle surrounding the word Ladies.
1: Later in the show, we'll talk with Western New England University law professor Jen Taub, a friend of E. Jean Carroll, who former President Trump was found liable for sexually abusing and defaming. And we'll get Professor Taub's take on the federal charges now facing Congressman George Santos. But first... We've just been having a vivacious conversation off the air about the whole East Hampton ladies word controversy, but that is not the word controversy that we're talking about with the word nerd, Emily Brewster, resident wordster from Merriam-Webster today. There's another local word-based It seems like there's
0: always controversies with words going on, which is pretty awesome.
1: Two local ones to focus on, and we'll talk with Vito Perone later about the other controversy with the East Hampton School Department. But this is the headline from the Daily Hampshire Gazette, School at Smith College Ends Use of Word field says it has negative connotations with racism, comma, slavery. An article by Alexander McDougall, the Smith College School of Social Work will no longer use field in reference to any aspect of its program. A word the school says may have negative connotations with racism and slavery. In an email last week, the School of Social Work faculty member Katya Serrar, Ariana Napier-White, and Mary Beth Stratton said the change reflected the school's stated core principles that call for centering the lived experiences of marginalized communities, among other things. We invited Smith College to come on with the word nerd and talk about the word field. Uh, And they did say, the spokesperson, that they were a big fan of Emily Brewster, but that they (laughs) did not want to come on the radio and discuss it, they did give us a statement that said, consistent with the guiding principles of the social work profession, Smith College's School for Social Work strives for intentional accountability. Recognizing the power of word choice, the school has changed the name of the Office of Field Education to the Office of Practicum Learning. The school specifically chose the word practicum, a course of study that involves the supervised practical application of previously studied theory, to better reflect the experience of faculty and students rather than a reactive moment. This is a proactive decision to bring the language the school's program more in line with its goals and intentions. So this wasn't based on a complaint. This was based on a proactive decision. It's They're not the first social work school to have done this. A school in California did it earlier. So we thought we'd ask the dictionary about the history and etymology of the word field, Emily Brewster.
2: Oh, you wanted to know about the history and the etymology of the word field. Well, uh, it, it's an old English word right? The word field is a thousand years old. And it first referred to an open area of land, nothing to do with cultivation or a lack of cultivation or anything. It was, you know, it was a, like a, a flat area of land, like a field of wildflowers. So that's that's its earliest use. But the word is, uh, as we say in the dictionary business, polysemous. It has many, many different okay. meanings. Polysemous, P-O-L-Y-S-E-M-O-U-S. And um, so, you know, it's, it's got lots and lots of application. And and you know, the, the word is applied in lots of different scenarios. And sure, some people do have an association of the word field with people who were forced to do labor in fields. You know, it, it, it's very interesting to me that this is a choice that is being made in social work now at two different colleges. The other was uh, University of Southern California. Both cases, social work. I think it's interesting.
1: This article about the same issue from... Mass Live, by Will Catcher does say that while field can mean an expansive area of land or crops in academia or the sciences, it often describes work done in a real-world environment. A biologist, for instance, may collect field observations on an animal by observing it in its natural habitat. Some of the take that I've heard from other people is that maybe field is not an adequate description of what it means when people in the sociology department leave their "quote unquote" ivory tower and go amongst the, the hoi polloi, the common people. But are any of the Do any of the definitions that Merriam-Webster includes on this particular word have slave connotations in its subsequent definitions?
2: Not specifically, uh, but there are certainly established phrases that evoke slavery, but also any kind of imbalance between like a field hand and the person who is in charge of the field hands. There are lots of these phrases that appear. I want to clarify, this is not sociology, this is social work. Sociology and social work are, are very distinct. One is, um, as I understand not being a sociologist or a social worker, uh, but sociology seems to me at much greater remove from the subject uh, it's a you know there's a subject of study which is the society and a social worker is actually far more relational as i understand it and i think about the implication of field almost being like it emphasizes the observational aspect of the work as opposed to the relational aspect of the work and in that sense you know there's a shift away from field maybe, maybe makes sense intuitively to me as just a just a speaker of the language not even as a professional lexicographer
1: that being said smith did make the decision to change this word in the social work department and make the direct relationship to it potentially having harmful reaction and connecting it with with slavery but again the dictionary doesn't go that far i'm of two minds personally about this particular thing because i am one who will a say language is always evolving. And I think that we need to be as empathetic as we possibly can in our language. That being said, I question whether or not Smith should be focusing on more uh, useful ways of being less harmful.
0: Has Smith said that the science departments are also not using the word field? Is it across the board at the college? No, I don't think so.
1: It's only the School of Social Work. And I'm pretty sure from what I've read from them that, you know, they're not going to change the name of like field hockey or things like that that actually happen outside in the green plot of land that's outside of
2: Smith right. College.
0: I feel like that would be taking it a step too far. Like clearly that refers to an actual field as opposed to a proverbial field.
2: So you like the, the literal field, but not the proverbial. Right. <laughs> yeah. But
0: like, I was curious about like, if it's not a campus wide adoption for the non-use of the word field, how does that reflect on the departments that are continuing to use it?
2: My understanding is that this is actually an office that the name is being changed of, so not even a department. Ah. So there, it's, it's really a pretty localized change that's being made. With all these choices that we make and how we name things, to my mind, the most important thing is how that change feels to the people who are affected by it. So it doesn't really matter how I feel about it or you know how, how people outside really feel about it. How does it does this feel like a positive change to the people who are affected by the work that the social work department does? If it does, then Probably worth doing. Right.
1: The the Gazette article does say that the School of Social Work faculty members cited the plan as a part of its reasoning behind the change of wordage. We recognize that adopting a new name for our office can be challenging, and we expect that this will take some time, but we hope that you'll join us in this effort to be intentional and inclusive and to stay open and actively engaging with change. What's interesting to me about this is that it wasn't based on a complaint. So, a couple of years ago, a well established event in Northampton that's a fundraiser for the schools where bands would perform as other bands changed its name. The original name of the event was called Trans Performance because you were going to transform and perform at the same time. That was perfect in the 90s and early 2000s, but it's clear that trans has taken on a new meaning in the common parlance and if you're especially somebody new to the area and you hear there's an event called Trans Performance, it may be a very different event that you're expecting to be going to. So Out of an uh, abundance of caution and, I think, kindness, they decided to just change the name. They started calling the event Performance... You know, it was easy to make fun of that at the time to say, like, are we going to take the Pioneer Valley Portation Authority to the event that they took the trans out of and just refer it to as performance?
0: I feel like the bigger issue here is that it definitely needs a better name.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: (laughs) Because performance is is so nothing when that event is so cool, which isn't to say that they should have continued using trans performance. Like, I totally understand the reasoning for changing the name. I did then, I do now. But just calling it performance is like, y'all, you could do better.
1: The summer where they changed it, it was all the literature was out under the name trans performance. And then there was a, a bit of a what felt like a knee jerk reaction to change it from trans performance to performance. Now, I didn't hear of any specific complaints about the event. Again, it was almost in anticipation, not unlike this Smith discussion of the word field. So my question, and I guess this is just your opinions, should we wait until there's a complaint or is getting out in front of it, an issue like this good? Or is it performative to say we're going to change trans performance to performance we're going to stop using field work and start calling it practicum
0: i feel like it's good to get out in front of it in general you should i feel like it often feels more performative when you wait until there's a complaint because it assumes that you were fine with the way that it was instead of looking for ways to be better with your language and more like more thoughtful in the words that you're using but that's just me
2: I, I agree I mean if if the uh, language we've got two main goals that language has right it's communication and its expression and if you recognize at some point that your communication is likely to be hindered by a word choice because people are going to get hung up on it they're going to f- possibly find it offensive as soon as you recognize that this might cause people to um to to not get to the Side of what you're trying to say, then it's worth changing. You know, like it's like if if the communication is likely to be hindered, then yeah, you want to find a more effective way to communicate. It's not effective if you're offending people. Yes, your ability to communicate something can be hindered by being overly concerned about what might possibly offend. But if there is reason, when you have reason to believe that something might offend or that it might communicate something inaccurately, then yeah, that's that's when you change it.
1: The mass live article says when uh, University of Southern. California came to the same decision that officials said, quote, field work in similar terms may have connotations for descendants of slavery and immigrant workers that are not benign. Then they quote a Smith College student, Ana Endo, saying, I never really saw it that way before uh, when informed of the new language policy and, quote, hearing about it now, I think the word has many different contexts and it's the way you use it that matters. I think overall, this word field and the decision really feels like a positive step, but a very small positive step in an otherwise fraught situation historically with the legacies of these colleges, their institutions, where their foundations have invested their money, how that money came to be endowed to these institutions in the first place. but.
0: It's like, I mean, are they centering that, like the experience of the students of these communities in like their tuition? Because, <laughs> I mean, it's real pricey to go to Smith. Smith <laughs> is getting better in that
1: regard, and I'll give them that. They really have That's tried true. to make it That's so true. that they're not getting people into crippling debt to go to their institutions and reaching out to try to get a more broad spectrum of people who might not have historically been able to access that institution. So it's the plate tectonics of society where like slow, tiny earthquakes and sometimes big earthquakes of change. I wonder, Emily Brewster, since the Smith College, at least this office in the sociology department, will begin using practicum Maybe we should learn a little bit more of what the dictionary has to say about the word practicum.
2: Yeah, practicum is a—it's an interesting choice, right? Field is this thousand-year-old word that is from Old English. It is a very deeply English word. Practicum, meanwhile, is Latin. It was borrowed from German in the late 19th century, as is the case with Latin-derived academic terms. It's really a term that kind of creates distance, <laughs> which is uh, another interesting fact about the language choice. Yeah, an irony for sure we use academic scientific latin-based language you know often in in these contexts because it's feels universal it also feels really smart right it feels like it feels more official somehow and it is necessarily then kind of less of the people of the hoi polloi of the common human it's, yeah it's an it's a, i think it's a very interesting choice but you know it, I mean, we are talking about an academic setting so academia is perfectly fine with <laughs> with that in theory but it is, it It is an interesting choice. And again, I wonder about how the people who are affected by it feel. I'm curious about like who encounters these terms? Who encounters the name of this office? Is it just the students? Is it the communities that they work with? And is it important that the students know that there is no connection to slavery or to ways that people have been abused and taken advantage of in agrarian? situations in farms, and that those students think instead of this as being an academic pursuit exclusively. I don't know. I, this is not intuitive to me. This choice is not an intuitive change. I, I do think that um, people are thinking more about, about the history of slavery in the United States and where it is in our language. There's talk about uh, people no longer using the term master bedroom And master bathroom in real estate. You know, I like I'm embarrassed that my my profession is lexicography and I had not made that association in my mind. And then I heard it and I was like, oh, that's gross. It's such an established phrase. That a lot of people don't think about it until it's brought to their attention, and it may be that eventually that field ends up being cast in that same kind of light, but maybe not because it is such a polysemous word and it has so um, many other established uses, and it has a very, very, very long history. You know, it's not like master and slave, which have been taken out of tech vocabularies in a lot of ways, right? That was done explicitly a few years ago, and I do I do think that that is an interesting corollary to what is happening here with this of social work.
0: And frankly, reflective of like there being more black coders out there doing more important work and bringing the issue up because otherwise it never would have changed. Still accidentally in parlance when I'm building systems. (laughs) I feel like when you were putting motherboards together Or like putting a a computer together uh, Was only within the past like Five or six years that you stopped seeing it On motherboards
1: We can't call them motherboards anymore Or the gays are going to think it's Dolly Parton I
3: always believe that a person should be who they are And you should be comfortable being who you are And people should leave you alone to be who you are And how you are So I think I've always been accepted In the gay community because I accept them
1: Everybody gay is Dolly Parton girl. Everybody gay is Dolly off. Parton. It makes me want to put another motherboard in my
0: computer. What are you going to say to all of those gay engineer, gay computer engineers out there? This board is so mother.
1: All
2: right, I think I'm the <laughs> only mother among the three of us, so yes.
1: <laughs> how do you feel about motherboards?
2: Motherboards are, are God bless them. God bless them, everyone. <laughs> it's Mother's Day coming up. Yeah, Motherboard Day. Take all your computers out for brunch. <laughs> it
0: would be an interesting thing because like, the evolution of mother and gay culture as how your son is using it- as opposed to, like, how I know to use it from, like, ages ago in gay culture. That's a fascinating evolution, too. Yeah. Like, how? Now?
1: <laughs> yeah, it seems like I've only heard of it pretty recently, but every day my son tells me who's mother today. It's always Dolly Parton, though. <laughs> well, thank you, Emily Brewster, Resident Worcester from Merriam-Webster. Do you want to weigh in on the uh, ladies' controversy with uh, before Vito Peron
0: comes in?
2: No, no, I don't think you Okay. My <laughs> code of name.
0: Coming up, we will speak with Dr. Vito Perrone, who has been at the center of attention locally and nationally in the search for a new superintendent in East Hampton. You're listening to The Fabulous
1: 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. Dr. Vito Perrone is the assistant superintendent slash interim superintendent of the West Springfield Public
0: Schools. From a Daily Hampshire Gazette article dated... April 1st, Dateline East Hampton. Superintendent finalist Vito Perone said Friday that the East Hampton School Committee rescinded its offer to hire him in executive session Thursday night, alleging that the reason was a perceived microaggression contained in an email he sent to the committee chairperson. What he claims came under fire is his addressing of the two committee members as ladies at the beginning of the email. According to Perone, chairperson Cynthia Kwasinski said that
1: using ladies was a microaggression and the fact that he didn't know that as an educator was a problem. Perone responded, I was shocked. I grew up in a time when ladies and gentlemen was a sign of respect. I didn't intend to insult anyone. We had on the mayor of East Hampton talking about this issue last week. And when I ran into Dr. Vito Perone at a Harold Grinspoon Foundation charity event last week, it seemed only fair that we invite him to
0: respond. Indeed. And he's here in the studio with us. He is indeed in studio with us. So to start, could you define microaggression?
4: Uh, sure, a microaggression is uh, any term that uh, makes someone feel that they are less than another. Um, you know, it, it it gets to that place where uh, people who are of a um, segment in society who are underrepresented, who have been um, subjected to racism and bigotry, uh, feel that uh, they are less than others.
1: We had the mayor on, and I don't know if you had an opportunity to hear what she had to say last week. So I've taken a couple of clips from that conversation, and I thought you might want to respond to them. So the first uh, part of the conversation from the mayor that I'll play for you now uh, addresses microaggressions and and this particular one, ladies. Mm -hmm.
5: Ladies and being called a lady. If termed a microaggression, which I know is a strong word, it should be taken as that fact and how they feel and how they'd like to be how they'd like to be referred to. And I think it's fair uh, to say that Chair um, Kwasinski and as well as Ms. Colby uh, had the chair called out. That's not the way she would like to be referred to. And that's for her to decide. That's no different than, um, you know, a level of harassment in the workplace. Do I think on the scale of microaggressions, is it a massive one? No, there are much, <laughs> there are many more that folks that, you know, don't look at all at me, that aren't white, and they're, it's not on that level. But it's also, though, important. He she clarified in office. a public statement that mm-hmm. she took it as an insult and a microaggression, and I feel that is for her to define and to be respected. So... Uh,
1: what's your response to that? And do you consider, um, it, I do acknowledge that it was a microaggression, in her opinion.
4: I, 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 in my experience, when we talk about offense and offending other people, usually there's some intent involved there. My intent was not to offend anyone. My intent was to address an email to um, Ms. Colby and The mayor. I had worked with Miss Colby previously when I was the um, the principal at East Hampton High School. I had a a relationship with her. I've known her a long time. Initially, my email went just to her, and it said "Sue," email, and then I, I ended it with "Veto." So uh, when she responded and said, hey, would you mind sending it to the chair and me so that um, uh, the chair receives it? I, I said, absolutely, I will. So I copied it, pasted it, and I put ladies as the heading. And and it was not my intent to offend. And, and I initially said that in our meeting, that uh, if I offended anyone, I apologize. That was not my intent. And I, I kind of went into the, you know, my upbringing and the use of ladies and gentlemen, et cetera. And I was told that... Um, that, that, the, that the apology didn't really matter because the offer was rescinded. So, so who,
1: did you, who did you make this apology to and in what setting? Was it in that executive session that we have not yet seen the sure. details of? That's when... So yeah. you're saying you did apologize. Oh, absolutely. And,
4: and, and in that session... So executive session is really clear. There's an agenda. There's an item on the agenda. And they're going to address that item with whomever is uh, intended to attend. And so I hopped on the executive session. I was asked to step off for, for a few minutes while they discussed. My assumption was they were going to discuss the request that I was making, um, and which was, was shared in the email. And when I, you know, I sat in the, uh, in the conference room and I waited because it was a Zoom or mm-hmm. a meet. And uh, they, for 45 minutes, I waited. And then I got a text, Dr. Brown, please hop on. So I hopped on. And the first thing that was said to me was that the offer was being rescinded because I said ladies in the address and that's a microaggression. And I really was, I've said this multiple times, I was shocked. And then I attempted to apologize. And uh, the, the conversation, if you will, focused only when I was there in the executive session, the conversation only focused on my use of ladies, the fact that it was a microaggression, the offer was rescinded. And that was it. There was no discussion. There was no negotiation. There was no um, uh, even reference to my requests other than ladies and microaggression. So I feel like
0: there's the issue of intent with microaggressions because often the intent isn't like the intent isn't there, but that doesn't necessarily erase the fact that the microaggression is happening. Understood. This is the problem with a lot of workplaces and especially like African American communities. Like, there's just things that you do mm-hmm. that are abrasive that you may not know about until someone brings it up.
4: Yes. Sorry. So,
0: like, it, so it's, in a, it has to be kind of an acknowledgement of it being in a microaggression without needing the intent.
4: And are you saying you sure. did acknowledge that and apologize? I did. I, I, I said, I, if I offended you, I apologize. I'm sorry and this is why. Yeah. And, and as an educator, you know, that's what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to have civil conversation. We're supposed to have discourse. We're supposed to um, allow people some opportunity to learn and grow. I wasn't afforded that. I wasn't even afforded my due process. And that that I found difficult to to take. Now, what, and we're
1: speaking with uh, superintendent, interim superintendent of the West Springfield Public Schools, former candidate for superintendent of East Hampton schools, uh, Dr. Vito Perone. When we had the mayor on, she told us that sh- what happened in that executive session could have and maybe should have stayed in executive session. And when that story first broke,
0: mm-hmm.
1: what everyone was hearing about is ladies, the word ladies, and not on potentially other concerns that may have been brought up. About you And the idea that maybe you created a narrative out of this. Let's hear what the mayor had to say about um, that executive session.
5: Executive session is confidential, um, very purposely so, as are negotiations. I said as much to Dr. Perron in that first executive session that no one, he was concerned. And I said, no one on this committee legally can speak about this. The statement will be that we entered negotiations and could not come to agreement. And I faithfully said, what you say is up to you. But this is what we're going (laughs) to say. And if you should hear differently, um, then I would like to know. And Chair Kwasinski would like to know because there are consequences to that. Uh, Dr. Perrone did then go public with his concerns and decided that it was that comment. It was much more as well as the context and how he addressed the whole school committee in that executive session. But then to go public with his own narrative um, is utterly confounding to me, um, utterly confounding.
1: So why did you decide to go public with that? And do you regret
4: that decision now? Uh, So if I could, one of the things that was mentioned was it was executive session. Absolutely correct. Uh, In an executive session, if the individual is going to be discussed, that individual should be present in the executive session. So when I was asked to leave and for 45 minutes something was talked about, I wasn't present there to defend myself, nor was my representative, and that's part of the law, there to defend me. So when I did hop on the executive session, the only thing that was said to me was ladies and microaggression. So I responded to that. The reason I came forward, and and the mayor's absolutely correct, she said to me, Dr. Perrone, we won't say anything about this. All we will say is we failed to come to a successful negotiation and contract. But that's not true. We never negotiated. We never talked about the requests I had. The only thing that was mentioned to me was that I, used a microaggression. Ladies. The notes for the minutes
0: for that session are technically requestable now, like only just now.
4: Have you put in a request for the notes of the session? I have not because ultimately I was on it, asked to step off. I don't know what happened in the midst of that. It was never told to me. The only thing that was discussed with me was the fact that I used ladies. That was a microaggression. Right.
0: But as far as I can tell from the, what Massachusetts says for open session and executive sessions, there are four. Like they have to keep some minutes of what happened in those forty-five minutes mm-hmm. uh, as public record. And only again, like only now in the past like few days should that have become requestable. Mm-hmm. So I
4: was just wondering. Yeah. And, and that's true. Uh, but but from my perspective, I wasn't privy to that. I wasn't allowed to be in there, even though I was supposed to be in there because they were talking about me ostensibly. So uh, I, I haven't requested it. And, and you're right. They as far as I know, they're not yet available. There must have been okay. other concerns is what came out
1: after the about a week of the story of ladies, yeah. then going national and yes. people, Fox News and everybody and people writing letters from the West Coast to the local papers yes. here yes. about the, quote unquote, woke mob um, was you, you still made this decision to, to run out there with this story. Do Do you regret doing that now? It seems to have caused a great deal of harm to the city of East Hampton yeah. and to the parents of the city of East Hampton mm-hmm. and going forward to try to find a superintendent
4: in the future, looking back on it would you do this the same way? Thank you very much. And reminding me, because that was one of the questions you asked. And I was there for a long time, for six years. I, have a, I developed a relationship with the, with the students and the parents. I was a coach. I was a principal. We built a new school. We went from level three to level one. So I have ties to that community. I love East Hampton. I want to be their, their superintendent. The reason I went public and I didn't call the media. The media called me. I was called by the, the reporter. And she asked me if I would talk about what happened. The reason I went public is because what was told to me that night was that they wouldn't say the truth. Sorry. The truth that was said to me, that I, 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 the reason I didn't get it was because of the microaggression. What they said was that they would say, we, wouldn't, we didn't come to negotiate a contract. That wasn't true, because I never had an opportunity to negotiate. I did not want the people of East Hampton and the parents and the teachers to think this was about money. It wasn't. Because
1: there are a lot of stories about you know, 14 weeks vacation yes, and things like yes. that. Is that is all of those details
4: that you've seen so far true of things that you were asking for? I, it, it, again, the, I didn't want people to think it was about money. Okay. When I got the call, right, I was sleeping. I was woken up at 1215 by a police officer knocking on my door, knocking on my door. And uh, I then was told by the police officer, they're trying to get a hold of you. Give them a call. So I did. They offered me the position at a rate of $151,000. And I said, is there room to negotiate that? Because the range was 142 to 157, I think. And they said, no, based on your experience, et cetera, we're going to place you here. Do you accept the position? And so I said to them, and almost a quote, I'm not going to make this about money. I accept the position. So it was never about money. And when, when you speak to the requests I made, they offered me, I received a contract, um, email. I looked at it and um, Ms. Colby said, would you respond to the, 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 the contract? And I said, absolutely. I looked at it, I marked it up a little bit and I, I sent that email. And in that email, I asked, instead of 26 days, 30 days of vacation every year, right? Instead of um, what the language said was 151000 for year one and no less than 151000 for year two and three. So I asked for a COLA, cost of living increase, year two and three, right? 3%. And then I also asked for a sick bank. Now, the sick bank is basically, right now I work in West Springfield. I've worked there for eight years. I have over 80 days of, of absences. So I wanted to have a, a, a nest egg, a, a, a sick bank that I could rely on, in case something catastrophic happened. Because yeah, I could take uh, FMLA or whatever I needed, but you would charge for those days unless you have a bank. I worked in East Hampton for six years and I accrued over 70 days of a sick bank. So I was just asking for a sick bank similar to what I have in West Springfield and what I had in East Hampton. Subsequently, I've talked to a superintendent who who hired me and she told me when she came from the Berkshires to East Hampton, she asked for a sick bank and got it different administration, different school committee, etc. Different situation, but similar circumstance. I felt like I was not being unreasonable. I already took a $15,000 cut in rate. I was not going to quibble over the other things. It was just a request. But I never got to negotiate Monty. Let me uh, interrupt you before we run <clears throat> certainly, out of certainly. time here. But
1: would you have done this differently? Would you have gone would you have made this about ladies? That it became a national story. And I don't know if if that was your intent, uh, because you wanted that kind of attention for this? Or uh, if that's just the
4: way the media is working. I do appreciate you bringing me back to the question because yeah. you did <laughs> ask that. <laughs> uh, thank you, Monty. You're welcome. So, um, no, I did not say that so that the, um, the microaggression thing became the huge news. No, I said it because I wanted people to understand what was said to me in the executive session and why the offer was rescinded ostensibly.
0: Not to make this light, but I feel like this is where if we had taped this in advance, you would have inserted a Star Wars quote going, stay on target. Stay <laughs> right, on target. exactly. Or maybe this is a trap. Uh, <laughs> all that being
1: said, I mean, what have you learned through this? Yes. Are, are you going to change the way that you speak with women?
0: And you speak non-binary with? folks because. And, yes, of color. Like, and, yeah, I mean, yeah. Is
4: this a learning experience for you? It is a learning experience. And that's what we squandered here. There was an opportunity in that first week for us to come together and really talk about this, setting norms, setting expectations around what we are going to call each other, how we are going to use our language in meetings, in emails, et cetera. We do it all the time in our roles, but yet it didn't happen in this instance. I was never given an opportunity to learn and grow, if you will, from it. The offer was simply rescinded. I'm sorry that people were threatened. That was never my intent. Because school committee members have been threatened. They were threatened. I respect the work that they do. No one knows that more than me. I've worked in three different school districts, and I see the thankless, tireless hours those school committee members put in. I never wanted that to happen. I never wanted to get calls from the national media. This was just about what happened in East Hampton, and I wanted the people there to know that I was not being mercenary Dr. Vito Peron, <laughs>
1: thank you so much for spending time with us here today. Coming up next, we'll speak with legal scholar and advocate Jennifer Taub about the implications surrounding Trump's civil rape trial and about the federal charges facing Congressman George Santos. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM <laughs> Welcome back to the fabulous 413, law professor at Western New New England University and author of Big Dirty Money and Other People's Houses, host of the Politicon podcast, Booked Up, joins us. She's our regular correspondent when it comes to all things, the legal troubles of the former president of the United States. Welcome back to the show, Jen Taub.
3: Hey, thanks for having me back, Monty and Kalise. Of course. You're wonderful to talk to.
1: So the big news yesterday was the fact that in this is from The New York Times, a story by Lola Fadula, a federal jury in Manhattan found former President Donald J. Trump liable for sexually abusing and defaming the writer E. Jean Carroll. And we should note a warning that we may discuss issues having to do. There's no may. This, it's the nature of the case. Yes. We will be discussing it. Uh, who had accused him of rape in the hour, uh, in the hours that followed. Trump then decided to criticize Ms. Carroll around the case. Apart from the fact that I think you're a legal genius, Gentaub, you also have become friends. Oh,
3: wait, I did, I'm sorry. I, I cut out again. Can you repeat that? Apart from that. the
1: fact that you're a legal genius, <laughs> Jen Taub, you are also friends with Eugene Carroll. And uh, I'm assuming you uh, have had the opportunity to, to go on this journey with her. Tell us about um, E. Jean Carroll as, as a human being and your relationship with her throughout all of this.
3: So a couple things to be clear, I have not spoken or emailed with E. Jean since the trial began. Um, I think the only communication I had is I put a little note up on her sub stack. Um, maybe I sent her a text yesterday with a crying emoji and a heart emoji. Oh. Uh, but, um, I I met her via Twitter. You know, those kinds of Twitter friendships you developed during COVID where someone's retweeting you a lot. And then the next thing I knew, we were like in a DM group together and pretty soon we were Zooming and knitting. So we had this sort of like <laughs> Zoom, we have a Zoom knitting circle. Oh, that's um, beautiful. Now I want to start one of
0: those. <laughs>
3: oh, it was sort of accidental. Um, and then, you know, we've met actually in person twice. Um, we met once at a shared friend from that knitting group's uh, book party. And then I also met her because I came to be supportive um, at a distance because it was during COVID when the uh, one of the appeals was going through on that first defamation case. Um, you know, the question that um, still was sort of making it through the courts and finally ended about whether um, He was acting within his presidential capacity when he initially defamed her by the way that case still is moving forward there's still another defamation case so what is she like as a person she is absolutely fabulous she is i think and if you followed the testimony i wasn't in the courtroom for this part but the testimony of the like um psychiatrist who's talking about her personality and said she was like extra exuberant and whatever those words were i'm like that's eugene i mean she (laughs) is i mean you just fall in love with her when you meet her she's engaging she's fun she's can be kooky she's creative and i didn't even know um when i met her about her incredible history and journalism i didn't even read her i wasn't an l magazine reader or advice column reader now i read her substack but i came to find out that she you know, worked when I read her book, she worked on Saturday Night Live for a season and was had an Emmy-nominated sketch that came up during the trial. You know, she also authored a biography of Hunter S. Thompson. I mean, she was considered like this female gonzo journalist type. And by the way, she's 70, flippin' nine years old. And <laughs> it's my goal to wake up tomorrow looking as good as E. Jean Carroll did, you know, on the stand.
1: Thank you for saying flipping. Yay. Um, The jury— I-
3: Oh. oh right, right. Yeah. I did. I wasn't sure if I had to, but then I remember we're live radio. Yeah, we are live right? radio.
0: Yes. Hoo, it's <laughs> live. Before you ask this, uh, what can you explain, like briefly, the difference between the two defamation cases? Because I'm not sure oh, everybody yes. understands. I know I don't.
3: Okay, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'll talk about the. The one. Do you want to talk about the one that just happened first, or do you want to talk about the other one? Yeah, I, let's I,
0: talk about the one that just happened first, and okay. we can talk about the one that's coming later. <laughs> OK,
3: so the case that just went to trial where the the nine person jury unanimously found that Donald Trump had both sexually abused E. Jean Carroll in the late 90s in a dressing room at Bergdorf Goodman and that he'd also defamed her in October of 2022. That's the case that she won and got is going to get the 5 million dollars in damages for. So when you you heard me right, October of 2022. This case that she just won was filed in November of 2022. And you may say to yourself, how in the world could a complaint that was filed uh for you know, for sexual battery including, you know, allegations of rape and sexual abuse. How could a sexual assault and defamation case filed in federal court in October of 22 come to trial in may of 2023 and get to a verdict are you wondering that
1: yes it seems pretty quick right
3: ah it's pretty quick because it was able this case was piggybacked on all of the discovery right the document sharing and the process associated with the first case that's uh-huh. going slower got hey.
1: it so all that was yes. there and this is sort of like a spin-off show
3: right and so the first case and what's important about this is that the the um reason why even before Donald Trump oh, sorry, defamed her in October of 2022 by saying she's not my type and she's making this whole story up, um, e. Jean was already planning to file the case in November, just a month later, because something special had happened. New York state had enacted, had just enacted a law called the Adult Survivors Act. And this is a law that said the former, formerly existing statute of limitations on sexual assault of adults would be retroactively lifted for just one year. So there's a one year window that began in November of 2022 that goes like to the November of 2023, where if you were in New York and you're a victim of sexual assault and you were an adult at the time, Um, And at the time, if the law in place had the statute of limitations, there cannot be a criminal case, but you could now bring a civil case. So the minute that window opened, they filed. Well, they were planning to file that. And just before they got the papers ready, he added, he again defamed E. Jean Carroll. And and I say again, because the first case was from when he was president. Okay, so that case has already gone through the courts. But the very first case that created all the document discovery and and prepared the groundwork so they could actually win this one was the the defamation case that E. Jean Carroll brought in November of 2022, right? That's three years earlier against Donald Trump based on him defaming her, saying she was a liar and a money grubber and all this stuff and not his type and not trustworthy. He said that like in July or August, of 2019 at the time her book was about to be published her book uh what do we need men for a modest proposal or what are men good for i keep keep forgetting (laughs) i have to tell you that jonathan swift referenced i mean in the courtroom i don't know if you followed any of it but hearing i was in the courtroom part of the time and his lawyer joe takapina did not get that it was satire (laughs) and the the, the oh, funniest no. flipping thing i i kept i want to show you this i know no one can see this because we're not actually <laughs> on, hold on. i'll
1: hit record on our chat thing here so that we <laughs> so, can, what people can oh, see wait. it when you hold it up yeah
3: okay go ahead okay so i am holding up an old um it's like a journal that i, I used to write daily in a journal before you know you could just tweet out your thoughts to the world and <laughs> i had one of these blank journals and i don't know if this is like faux leather leather covered with like this gilded spine my for my thoughts um <laughs> Uh, anyway, I I had one blank one, so I, I uh, April twenty fifth, twenty twenty three. I sat in court for three days and have like a hundred odd pages, and you can see in script.
1: Right? Wow! Yes, Whoa. very uh, nice handwriting. And, and
3: so you know, I think I'll go back and look at that. I hope. Um, and uh, one of the funniest things in the trial was him. You know, Joe Takapina was trying to paint Eugene before the jury on cross-examination as like a man-hating person who would just invent stuff to ruin men. And so he said, you know, in this book, you want to get rid of all the men? And she says, send them to Montana, like in this deadpan. <laughs> and I, was, I mean, you guys, I've got to go back and look at this, but it was like, it was just like, and then, you know, she said for re-education, he goes, oh yeah, he goes, shuffle them off to Montana. And she said for re-education and then the judge at that point said and then she goes then eugene goes it's satire and he, he didn't get it and then i was worried the jurors might not be familiar with satire right, right?
1: or a modest the proposal judge, i mean right. we need readers right. in this country
3: so to continue the judge leaned over and kind of looked at the jury and said The subtitle is A Modest Proposal. It's based on this satire. He said it it was 700 years earlier. It's only 300. He had to correct the record later. Um, But he did. Anyway, so let's go back to the initial initial trial.
1: Hang on. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll go back to the initial (laughs) trial. Maybe we'll have time to get to the whole new George Santos information that came out earlier today. We are speaking with Western New England University law professor and our expert on all things accusing Donald Trump, Gentile We'll be back on The Fabulous
0: 413. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. We are here with law professor at Western New, New England University, <laughs> unlike what's I've written here on my paper, Jen Taub, who is our expert legally on everything Trump. I feel like I've mixed those words up, but, you know, I think you did I'm right. getting the point across. So let's go back to that
1: first defamation case that you wanted to talk about.
3: Okay, so A. Jean was about to publish this book where she kind of goes on the road and tries to figure out uh, what we need men for. That's what it's called, What Do We Need Men For? And at the end of the day, you know, she's, she likes men and obviously doesn't want to send them all off to Montana for re-education. Um, but it's, a, it's an interesting book. And as part of it, she, she kind of, uh, when she was working on the book, um, it, it had come out, the whole Me Too movement, Um, had kind of come forward um, and women were speaking out about sexual assault. And remember that it was the Harvey Weinstein moment. Mm -hmm. And that inspired her. She thought, you know, I've always been this sort of cheerleader, literally, she was a cheerleader in Indiana and figuratively cheering people on and having kind of a public persona that was, you you know, you know, exuberant and happy, and let's take a step forward and freaking, yet, you know, had this inner life that she didn't really share with people and had realized uh, that she probably should talk about some of her not so good experiences with men. And one of those very not so good experiences was uh, was with Donald Trump. And so part of this, before the book came out, uh, I think it was New York Magazine published an excerpt. And in that excerpt, it, it revealed that she had been, you know, sexually assaulted by him. And uh, he was furious and he was president at the time. And he went out and spoke to the press, when asked and even when not asked and said she was a nut job, that he'd never met her before, that she was not his type, meaning not you know pretty enough to rape as if rape is a a crime of sex and not yeah. power and such and such. Um, and so that one ha- that happened and she brought the law and she lost her job at Elle Magazine. She brought that lawsuit. Um, And what happened with that one, it got stalled because about a year later, Bill Barr, who was the attorney general, decided to remove the case to federal court and argue that, um, he should step in and defend Donald Trump as an executive branch employee. And if he would be able to do that under the statute, the case would ultimately get dismissed if, he were, if Donald Trump were acting within the scope of his employment when he defamed someone that he raped years earlier. That case went up and through the courts. The, courts, the judges refused to decide whether he was acting in the scope. So now that will be up to a jury in the next defamation trial.
1: And there will be another defamation trial. What's the next, very briefly in the seconds we have left, what's the next legal hurdle that Trump will face likely? Jen Taub from Western New England University.
3: Well, I do have a spreadsheet uh, called Defendant <laughs> Trump. Um, oh, and I nice. think the next the next hurdle is likely to be um, an indictment in Fulton County, Georgia, unless Jack Smith can make recommendations to Merrick Garland and he doesn't sit on them forever And they get to it first.
1: And it seems like the the band aid has been ripped off when it comes to uh, accusing and taking a former president to trial. So this is something that is very likely to happen. I'll also just add in the brief seconds that we have left that I want to audit your class next semester because you posted (laughs) with 13 criminal counts implicating numerous federal felonies, the Santos indictment will be a document to which we will return to throughout the fall term. We'll have to have you back on to talk about those 13 federal indictments as that he pleaded not guilty just uh, right before the show started. where yeah, to come shocker. on that <laughs> Western New England <laughs> <laughs> University law professor, Jen Taub. Thank you so much for joining us here in the Fabulous 413.
0: Least surprising news you. ever. Yes. <laughs> love you guys. <laughs> thank you. you. Tomorrow in the Fabulous 413, Afrobeat, Roomba, Merengue, Yoropo, Ethiopian Groove. Musical worlds collide at Collider Fest, and we'll talk with Collider Fest
1: curator Ido Moore about this weekend's festival in Florence and about the new business model he's using to
0: bring more music from around the world here to Western Mass. It is so cool. And McGoverning with McGovern. If you have a question for the congressman, ask it. And maybe we'll ask him. Email us at thefab413 at nepm.org or text us 1-800-639-9120. Our director is Tony Double Shadow Dunn. Our engineer is Betsy
1: Neglect-Is-Free-Cortis. Our technical team is Bart. A man should have some Ray-Bans rankin'. Cara. there's Random Food People, Foster, and Punk Rock Dubay.
0: Musical thanks to Spouse, Happy Valley, Guitar Orchestra, Very Delta, The Beatles, Dolly Parton, who is so mother, and the kids, and Homebody. I'm Kelly Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. We'll see you tomorrow in the fabulous 413.